y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Spoon Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. We're back with another installment of our talk with Reformation scholar Carlos Ayer. This time we discussed the joys of historical research and discovery, the devil getting the credit for miracles, and the Blues Brothers and Old Brother Where Art Thou as films of faith. the process of research you know really fascinating especially you know you're you're finding things that you know people maybe haven't noticed before it, what little I've done it myself I I have found that well it's not actually finding something that has never been found before like you didn't find some document you know in a catacomb somewhere but a lot of times it's either finding something that was basically lost um, amongst other papers or Sometimes it's just really just stringing together a bunch of loose ends and, and finding mm-hmm. this narrative of some sort. So in your research, what, what are some things that you felt like you have found that maybe other people might have missed? For starters, my dissertation, which became my first book, War Against the Idols, which focuses on Protestant iconoclasm. When I started working on this in the mid-70s, it was a non-subject. Right? It was not an important subject. It was like even not even a not important subject. It was a non-subject. It took me a while to figure out why. I mean, because I really had to like swim upstream against a very, very strong current. Nobody thought this was worth spending anybody's time on. Why did Protestants reject the images? And why did they uh, move at, at different levels, right? Move away from material points of encounter with the divine. So like, for instance, why, why Protestants um, rejected transubstantiation or rejected actually real presence and, and had a, a you know, purely symbolic Eucharist. The reason this was a non-subject was that Reformation history had been written by Protestants mostly. And for <laughs> Protestants, it was a non-subject because oh, we got rid of all this crap. What's there to say? Actually, that's what the, the archivist in Basel, Switzerland, said to me when I explained what I was interested in, what my research was, he said, well, why are you doing this? There's nothing to say. We destroyed the images in one day and then they were gone. What's there to say? So eventually, not because of me, just because of some kind of general awakening in the academic community uh, for different reasons, other historians started to focus on iconoclasm Hmm. as something significant. And my book came out in 86, which was just about the time when other books and articles were coming out on iconoclasm. Mm-hmm. People kind of woke up to the significance. Did you ever come up with a, a thesis of why Protestants were so against these? I understand the idolatry thing, but was there something deeper, do you think? Oh, much deeper, yeah. It's, it's a different perspective on the relationship between the natural and supernatural realms. And Protestantism grew very, very uh, suspicious. At, again, it's like a spectrum at different places on the spectrum. This deep suspicion of 
being able to like handle the divine or supernatural uh, or look at you know representations of the supernatural well there's the second commandment yeah you're right that's that's pretty clear but why reject the physical presence of Christ in in the Eucharist or why reduce the sacraments from seven to two and you know those two can be very troublesome because they both involve matter i mean baptism involves water why should water cleanse you <laughs> of your sins it's a material thing and water is everywhere and you you take baths and then that's that's not yeah. changing you so that was a problem and then the the eucharist was an even bigger problem you know you're consuming bread and wine and it's supposed to somehow represent the body and blood of christ mm -hmm. well um, I traced it to a uh, very specific stream of thought that began in the late Middle Ages of, you know, distrusting the material world and thinking that matter might actually be an obstacle to the spiritual. And it, it's a very weird twist on Platonism. Yeah. It's, it, it has Platonic origins. You know, the spiritual is just the platonic realm of ideas, basically. Right. And uh, I blame one person specifically for actually passing this on a very strong way, and that's Erasmus. Zwingli was uh, enamored of Erasmus, read everything he wrote. And it's Zwingli who really started uh, this theological ball rolling. So those two in particular, Zwingli and Erasmus. But there were others... Uh, like Andrew Karlstadt in Wittenberg, his opposition to it came through his biblical literalism, of the, interpreting the second commandment as you know applicable to Christians too. Mm -hmm. But he had his uh, kind of platonic uh, foundation on which all of this uh, was was elaborated on and and turned into a, a policy. Well, I've got to ask, because it has been said that St. Augustine or Augustine, how you say it, you know, kind of single-handedly made Christianity into a Platonic uh, religion. Mm -hmm. But I never recall him ever rejecting the materialism that's involved in the sacrament. No, he, he didn't reject it. He was kind of suspicious of, you know, the way in which some pagan superstitions carried over. Mm-hmm because of this. But no, I actually, I think in his early years as a Christian, he was kind of skeptical about veneration of relics, for instance, but he grew, he, he grew uh, to appreciate its place in, in, in the Christian religion. Huh. So he didn't pass that on. He had a different kind, a different aspect of Platonism that he passed on. But in the, in Italy, at uh, the Platonic Academy in Florence, this is where all of this new, new Neoplatonism, if one can, <laughs> that's, a, that's two news uh, stitched together. New Neoplatonism. Um, <laughs> because uh, matter began to be looked upon as uh, an obstacle. And, and then you also have other strains, like the Brethren of the Common Life up in, in, in Northern Europe. And Erasmus was educated by the Brethren of the Common Life. And, and a book like The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, right? It's all about 
focusing on the spiritual rather than the material, focusing on the interior dispositions rather than external acts. And this is the heart and soul of Erasmus's uh, Christianity, which he passed on to Zwingli and other early reformers. Um, you know, so does it does it matter really? You know that that, that you you count your good deeds and you you go on pilgrimages and you um, say the rosary, you know, with uh, great speed. You say the prayers really quick. You think that's going to make any difference? The brethren of the common life would say, no, 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 no. That's not that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is you know your interior spiritual connection with with the divine and and being a, an ethical person and not saying prayers mechanically right so all of this gets passed on and, and the next thing you know uh yeah people are lighting candles in front of images and uh, venerating them and some are considered miraculous and relics are venerated as points of contact with heaven that can actually cure diseases and so on uh this is all gets thrown out. My argument has always been since the 70s that this this is not a sideshow of the Reformation. This, this is an elemental component of the Reformation, and it created a, a, a very different mindset, a different way of looking at the world and creating a Christianity that, that was, in fact, less, much less, depending on that spectrum, right? Less or much less focused on miraculous events. Because in the Catholic religion, every mass is a miracle. Yeah. Every time that, that bread and wine get uh, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ, that's a miracle. And Protestants moved away from the miraculous. So then in, the, in the, about a hundred and some years ago, Max Weber, whose mother was a Calvinist, Max Weber argued that the greatest contribution Protestantism made to Western culture was Entzauberung. Say that again? In German. Uh -huh. It never gets translated properly in English because it's, it, you can't do it. But Zauber in German means magic. Uh -huh. And when you put the prefix ent on something, it's D. So the demagification of the world. <laughs> right. right? Or you can call it desacralization, uh, but it usually gets translated as disenchantment. Oh. So Weber is known in the English-speaking world for having uh, put forward the idea that Protestantism's main contribution was really a, a, a huge paradigm shift, disenchantment of the world. Yeah, I know, didn't they say like the age of miracles had ended at a certain yes. day even? And that's, that's what I've been working on lately. Yeah. Um, that's my next book is on Protestant attitudes, not just Protestant, Catholic miracles that, you know, in our day and age would be considered absolutely impossible. Yeah. Levitation and bilocation. I guess I get that there were probably, just like there is today in the 
I mean, the charismatic movement, you have the, the faith healers, the hucksters, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sideshow men, all that kind of stuff that are just, you know, ripping people off with, you know, uh, parlor tricks. But at the same time, you know, I mean, miracles are a big part of the gospels. I don't know how you yes. can extract that. What if Jesus came today? Well, would we would we not believe? Would we think, oh, he's just doing some kind of sleight of hand thing, or what? Well, you know, he. This is this is what I love about the Gospels, uh-huh. is that you know Jesus gets always so irritated when people don't believe in him, right? Because oh, even Sodom and Gomorrah were preferable to this place. <laughs> <laughs> they got treated kindly compared to the way you're going to be treated right. for for you know for for your lack of faith. So every Protestant reformer had to interpret all those miracle stories because it's not just in the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, oh, yeah. which tells the history of the you know the, the, the infant church. The apostles are performing miracles right and left, you know, and like you know, angels are showing up and and freeing the apostles from from jail, and. Um, the most amazing passage, I think, in the New Testament, it's in the Acts of the Apostles, where it tells you that people would line up on the street. They knew Peter was going to be walking by. If his shadow fell on them, they would be cured. <laughs> and we also have evidence that they, they touched the apostles with pieces of cloth and stuff. And, and then pass those little cloths around as, as miracle-working right. relics. Oh, the Protestant reformers had, had a very difficult time with this yeah. stuff because they, they had to argue why, well, not argue, they had to explain why why is this here? Why all this miracle-working? Well, it's quite obvious. If they're going to be believed, they have to prove that they have some connection to, to God, to heaven. But then they had to argue that when the last apostle died, then it was no longer necessary for miracles to be performed. And the greatest miracle of all, some reformers would say, is the fact that people converted to Christianity without miracles. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's the greatest miracle of all. That's the greatest proof of the, the truth of the Christian religion. However, there's a flip side to this coin. The flip side is that while all the reformers who rejected the possibility of miracles performed by Christians, right, through the intercession of Christ and all this, they believed that the devil still could do all these things. And that actually all of the miracles claimed by the Catholic Church actually did happen. But they weren't miracles. They were demonic. (laughs) So the devil was given all this power, and God was stripped of this power. Hmm. And it's a very weird thing. So, you know, you asked about things that I had discovered that were like an amazing treasure to be found. I found one last summer. I was looking for examples of Protestant belief in demonic miracle working and I knew it existed because I had run into it before but I ran into an amazing one that took place in it's kind of late 1693 in Boston 
That's up the road. It, That's where you work, it, right? Yep. And it involved of all people, the 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 great Puritan divine Cotton Mather. Was a girl in Boston. This is 1693. Is also the time of the Salem witch trials. Yes. And Cotton Mather and his father Increase had both been involved in the Salem witch hunts. But anyway, there's a girl in Boston, teenage girl, possessed by the devil. She levitates. She goes up into the air. And there's one, uh, one account. All the witnesses uh, signed affidavits saying, yes, this did happen. Something like half a dozen men, or maybe even more, were in the room with this girl. And, and they piled on top of her in bed to keep her from going up in the air. And they could not restrain her. Oops, she went all the way up to the ceiling. And then they tried to pull her down and couldn't pull her down. And we have all these affidavits, you know, Puritans saying, this happened. I was so, so happy to find this. Because if you compare it to Catholic uh, accounts of levitation, it is identical. It's exactly the same phenomenon. These people who go up in the air cannot be restrained. They just go up and they're immovable once they're up there. This is why I say that, you know, yes, Weber was right. Um, Protestants desacralized the world to some extent, but not completely, not completely. Again, and as a matter of fact, it's a very odd thing for me because, you know, this is my purely rational, skeptical self. Why do Protestants continue to believe that the devil does these things? The only reason I can come up with rationally is that these things were happening. And then they had to explain them. If there were hell to hold Kentucky, the place where I was born and raised, the place where he was born and raised. Obviously, the, the Protestant world is not monolith. And I, I remember... Oh, no. When I was, I think it was in the early 90s when I was in college, uh, I went to, of course, a Nazarene college, as I've mentioned, and uh, all the rage, although I don't know what the Nazarene church as a whole thought of it, but there was these books uh, about spiritual warfare that kind of, oh, yes. This Present Darkness, I think was the name of the book, and there was a series, I think, but uh, it had some of my, I never read them, but I had some of my classmates convinced more of this, uh, were the demonic had uh, you know, was manipulating the material world. Uh, you mm-hmm. know there was there was a demon behind a lot of things more than we realized. Oh yeah, and I was shocked. This is like almost twenty years ago when I started looking into you know exorcisms and so on. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at the number of uh, even evangelical Protestant books on spirit deliverance. I was just blown away. I thought, my God, this has come back because <laughs> you know it was it was gone for a while. From, from most Protestants. Most Protestant churches didn't pay much attention to, to that stuff. Even though there's plenty of devil talk, you know. Yeah, yeah, the devil is a tempter rather than a miracle worker. But then he became a miracle worker again uh, in, some, in some branches of the Protestant family tree, only in some. And then faith healings became very big, especially in, in 20th century America. I remember watching these guys on TV Oh God, I can't. I forget some of their names. 
But there was one um, Benny, Benny something. Benny Hinn was one. Yeah, Benny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Slaying people with the spirit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Oral Roberts. I remember yeah. him. I'm old enough to remember Oral Roberts on television, healing people, right? And people coming up to be touched by him and throwing their crutches away, right? Leaping and dancing, <laughs> cured of blindness. Every just like Jesus, you know. This is my own cynicism, but my acid test is if they're doing it on television and they're somehow making money from it, it's not real. But right. if it's somebody down the street who you know had a neighbor come pray for him, like lay his hands on him, and somehow right. it's gone, whatever ailment he had, I tend to believe that for some reason because yeah. they're, they're not exploiting it. You know, that's right, and it's not it's not a show, and you have no way of you know proving that those people that go up on stage and are instantly cured had anything wrong with them before they went up there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, some of those guys have been caught, actually, you know, putting plants in the audience and all that. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is the treasure I treasure the most, is uh, calling attention to things that have been ignored. And I might get into deep trouble in academic circles when my next book comes out, because I argue that we cannot, simply cannot, as rational human beings discount the overwhelming evidence we have for miraculous supernatural events. Right. Uh, why, why do we need to dismiss them 100%? That's pure materialism. But astrophysics and subatomic physics are both revealing to us that the material realm is much weirder than the Enlightenment made it out to be. Yeah, I, I saw, or there still is a magazine called Wired that it used to be fantastic. Now it's just become woke and, and just regurgitates propaganda. But they did a whole issue on intelligent design, which I remember mm -hmm. at first thinking like, that. I, it, to me, it was just, I wasn't interested, but I ended up really being intrigued by it. And a lot of these folks aren't Christians or Jews or, or any kind of religious, um, don't, don't have a religious faith, but they do, they can't deny that like I think someone figured out like how many coincidences on top of coincidences uh, had to happen for life to exist on Earth, for example. You know, you can in science you can allow for one like anomaly or, or or a couple coincidences, but to have a bunch like like a million like squared to I don't know like you know a thousand, it just that it's no longer a coincidence. There's there's something right. guiding it, right? And yep. to to me, that's that's a miracle in itself. I mean, obviously, science accepts a lot on faith, you know, because they just don't know everything. You know, the, the more honest ones will tell you, the more they find out, the more they realize they don't know. That's right. Yep. And that is at bottom what you know all great scientists end up saying in one way or another is, uh, "Gee, I'm just humbled." I'm humbled. I'm humbled in the face of reality because our brains can only figure out so much. Uh, this, the, today, I was just, just less than an hour ago, I was reading this this article that appeared today on these uh, particles that were discovered uh, way back in the 1950s that go through matter. Our bodies are being constantly bombarded by these particles from outer space that just pass right through us and there's a way to detect them which is you know why we know about it well now they've figured out where they come from they come from black holes 
Which I thought nothing can escape from, right? Yeah, well, they, they come, black holes have something to do with it. I didn't read the whole article. It started yeah. getting too technical for me. Yeah. But um, just as we're bombarded by, you know, um, wireless telephone signals, mm-hmm. we're bombarded by these particles. But these particles pass through matter. So right now, you and I are being bombarded, even though we're in our houses. Uh-huh. And these particles are passing through our bodies. Explain that to me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, quantum physics, there's a lot of stuff you're thinking like if, if some guy on the street was preaching this from a soapbox, you would think he was a lunatic. But, right. but you know, it, it seems to help us make sense of the universe, even though. It, but, you know, actually, something you just said has actually um, made me have one of these eureka moments, uh-huh. which is that, you know, back to what I said before, that Jesus got really angry when people didn't have faith. Mm-hmm. I've seen this, there are some scholars now who are arguing, and very seriously arguing, that our our relationship with the material world is affected by our perception, our perspective. So therefore, people who expect the miraculous get the miraculous, and and who don't, just simply don't. They're blind to it, and it doesn't happen. So this explains why, you know, in ancient cultures, and even to the present day, in some cultures, you know, miracles uh, still happen. It's because people believe. And Jesus says, you know, basically over and over again in the Gospels, your faith has saved you. Right. Or your, faith, your faith has healed you. You know, it's funny you should say that because um, talk about the Exodus when that happened. And uh, I think it was even Carl Sagan who one day realized, like he was, I don't know, tracking comets or something, and he pinpointed the date when this particular comet had come by the Earth the last time, and it was like right at 1250 B.C. or something like that, right? And either him or somebody else in his team noticed like, hey, that's the exact date of the Exodus that they think, or, or, or whatever whatever the date, arbitrarily right. the date was. And uh, then they, they went and like opened the, the Old Testament, they started reading, they're like, well... That burning cloud, uh, yeah, that, that's a comet, you know. And of course, to some people that are cynical and, and don't care for religion, they think, okay, now we've explained it, so it's not a miracle. But as a Hebrew, you're being chased by some uh, army, and right. all of a sudden this burning cloud comes through the sky, and you start start following it, and then the rivers start running backwards, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's a miracle if it's happening to you. Miracles are hard to defined because again there's a spectrum you know medical miracles happen all the time i mean people are healed and doctors can't explain why they're healed but then there are other sorts of miracles that you know are are harder to explain like you know levitation and bodily location and um visions apparitions uh and you start getting into real fuzzy area with you know visions and apparitions because Anybody can say, hey, I, I saw Jesus yesterday. Or I'm always uh, amused by these stories because, again, they show how the miraculous somehow came back into American Protestantism. And I'm sure you've read these stories, too. Somebody finds an image of Jesus on an object. I still remember one. I think it was Kentucky. Somebody had an image of Jesus on the refrigerator door. Like the rust or something, or the yeah, the rust, and looked. Actually, I saw a photo of it, and yeah, if you 
you know, squint and look at it. <laughs> yeah. It could be. Those things are much harder to right. classify as miracles. Uh, you know, my wife and I were told by experts that we could never have children. Zero percent chance. And we have three. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that historically you could say that God works through his own rules some a lot. I mean, sometimes he may break his rules or, or the, the rules of the laws of physics as we know them. But uh, why can't he do things the way he wants to do it? And I say a religion without miracles is um, you know, still extremely valid religion. Mm -hmm. And people get literally saved, you know, in this life. It's quite obvious some people are saved from self-destruction or self-imploding by religions without miracles. Yeah. But I think a religion that has miracles has, has kind of a, a broader view of things. Mm -hmm. Or like the difference between, you know, the old square TVs and now the large screen TVs. <laughs> It's just a, a wider horizon if you've got the miraculous. I'm sure you've heard this joke before, and I think I've told this on the podcast before, but one of my favorites I used to, my, my grandfather was a preacher, and, and he didn't like this joke, but, and, but his memory was such he always for, would forget it, and so I would keep telling it and uh, irritate him. But there's this guy that I guess he's fishing or something, and, and his boat starts leaking. He can't swim real well, and he starts, you know, praying for God for a miracle to save him, right? And as he's waiting there, a guy in a speedboat uh, happens to see him, and, and he comes by, and he's like, "Hey, dude, uh, get on board. I'll help you out." And he's like, "No, no, no. I, you know, God's gonna help me out here." And speedboat guy's like, "Okay." So he, he goes off, and then later, like a helicopter comes by. He's like, "Hey," and they they drop a ladder to him. He's like, hey, climb on up. We'll help you out. He's like, "No, no. God's gonna, God's gonna help me out here." And eventually he drowns and dies. And so he ends up in heaven. And the first thing he does is, you know, basically put God in a corner. He's like, hey, man, you know, I, I reached out to you and you, you, didn't, you didn't save me. And he's like, I sent a speedboat and a helicopter. But what else did you want? <laughs> you know? But I yeah. like how that joke in a way does get to the fact that sometimes we, we don't, uh, we're kind of blind to the miracles, as you had said because we don't expect to see him in a certain, or we maybe expect to see him in a certain way, like with magic right. and, you know, fire coming out of the sky or something. Yes, that's absolutely true. And that joke reminded me of another one that, that has to do not with miracles, but with behavior. And it's about um, this man who wins the lottery. And um, he thinks he has it made. He's a religious man, but he wins the lottery. Somehow it goes to his head and he starts... Um, you know, uh, doing all the things he's not supposed to do. He starts going to prostitutes. He starts drinking too much. He starts taking drugs. Anyway, he just lives a completely hedonistic lifestyle. And then he dies uh, in an accident. And then he's up in heaven. And uh, it, he gets a sense, no, no, you can't come in here. You're going to the other place. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's talking to God directly. He says, well, God, don't, don't you remember me? I used to, you know, be so pious and, and, and do all these good things. Don't you remember all these things? He says, oh, that's you? I don't recognize you. <laughs> You're going down there anyway. All the more reason. But you become unrecognizable when you, you change your, your behavior. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of a, a reverse 
conversion or reverse miracle. Yeah. But people do kind of transform themselves into the opposite of what they were. Uh, and that doesn't count as a miracle. It's a, it's a counter miracle of sorts. Or it's, you know, put that on the devil's column. Yeah. He was successful. As I'm talking to you, people can't see it, but you've got a record uh, displayed of the Blues Brothers. Of course, it's the soundtrack to the film. As we both discovered before we started recording, we both love this film for probably some similar reasons and some different reasons. So I'd like to hear your take. Why do you love this film and why do you think it's important? Oh, well, I love it for so many different reasons. It's a very religious movie if you view it from, from a certain perspective. It's a running joke in the film that the Blues Brothers, uh, these petty criminals, are on a mission from God. They have to save the, this orphanage in, 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 that they lived in when they were younger. They have to save it from closing. And it's a Catholic orphanage. Right? And they have an, an encounter with this nun. They call it the penguin. The penguin and, oh, this is, uh, you can't, you know, you can't explain humor because then it loses all its funniness. But it's a running joke. Uh, they keep breaking the law, literally breaking all kinds of laws, including, you know, driving through a shopping mall and destroying all the stores. <laughs> I mean, that's it's biblically consistent in some ways that God seemed to use very flawed individuals sometimes to oh, yeah. get things done. Absolutely. These these guys are petty criminals. The the opening scene is um, Elwood is picking up his brother Jake from Joliet State Prison <laughs> outside of Chicago. And another reason I love this movie is that, you know, I basically grew up in Chicago. Uh, my most formative years were spent there. And I, I, uh, I, I actually went to Second City when I was in college, uh, and I, I saw John Belushi performing on stage. Really? <laughs> before he became famous. Wow. And um, I love Chicago, and the film is set in Chicago. Uh, but I, what I, I enjoy the most about that movie is you know, the music, the humor, and all the miracle working. Because as they're breaking every law in, in, in the books when it comes to driving, <laughs> <laughs> as well as, you know, kind of uh, fooling people, yeah. they always get away with it yeah. throughout the film until the very end. You know, they finally get the money by performing their music. To, to a crowd of thousands <laughs> to collect enough money to keep the orphanage from closing and in the meantime create the, the biggest uh, ever. Up to that point, it was the most expensive movie made. But they crashed so many cars on the streets of Chicago <laughs> to make this movie <laughs> that it was the most expensive ever. So they created the, this... Uh, complete disaster in downtown Chicago and they bring the money to whatever l civic office handled such things because the, it was paying taxes for the orphanage. Right. They get arrested and they get sent to prison. <laughs> but in the meantime, they have performed all sorts of miracles. 
uh, and their car performs miracles. And they, they end up in prison, just like, you know, good Christians uh -huh. doing God's will sometimes end up paying high price for. Uh, of course, it's all tongue in cheek, but deep down, you know, it's um, it's also a very Catholic movie in, in that, you know, you have these very flawed people, extremely flawed, doing God's mission. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> and uh, there's there's one scene where um, they, they come across a group of neo-Nazis and uh, they, they drive them off this bridge into, into a river, right? And they, they don't care. They're, they're the agents of goodness versus evil. And, you know, and, and at one point, I think it's Jake who says, yeah, uh, I hate effing Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> Steps on the accelerator and drives them off the bridge. Uh, but there's this one scene where the nun, the penguin, she has just whacked them silly with, with a, a, it's like a pointer, a wooden pointer, a long wooden pointer. She's just hitting them back and, and, and hits, hits them out of her office. But her goodbye is that she levitates. <laughs> she just kind of flies back like this. And then the door closes by itself. And there they are laying on the floor. They've just fallen down the stairs. And a miracle has taken place. And that's where they go on their mission. I've seen this movie so many times I've lost count. Yeah, I think the same here. I I showed that film when I was uh, teaching in China. I, every semester I would show one film and I would make them write a paper about it. But I felt it was one of the, the quintessential Americana films because... I mean, you could follow all kinds of rabbit trails in that film. You, obviously, you see Faith represented, but and uh, Chicago, of course. Other than John Hughes, I think John Landis made a perfect love letter to Chicago. Um, yes. But also, especially because of music, you know, you have Cab Calloway, who was a, such a giant back in the 30s and 40s, and they sing the song "Sweet Home Chicago," which is a Robert Johnson, you know, bluesman song, and. Right. You have Ray Charles, you have Aretha Franklin. I mean, you could thread all kinds of needles there and to tell the American story. At the very beginning, they have a conversion experience in church, and it's no no other than James Brown <laughs> who delivers this beautiful sermon. But if you have a chance, just listen to what he says before the music that breaks into music, mm -hmm. because he's talking about free will. And again, like that joke I told about the guy God couldn't recognize, you know, since he's talking about the, the souls of modern men and women <laughs> who end up being damned because, because how, how did he put it? The, the light they chose not to follow. Huh. And that's when uh, Jake sees the light and, and James Brown is saying from the pulpit, have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? And and uh, John Belushi responds. He's bathed in light. <laughs> this heavenly music is playing, and he says, "Yes, yes, I have Jesus H tap dancing Christ. <laughs> I have seen the light." And he cartwheels down the <laughs> center center aisle. But I have I borrowed this uh, Jesus H thing 
I use it in Waiting for Snow in Havana uh, repeatedly because I started thinking, you know, Jesus did many things that you could you could add as a kind of a qualifying adjective. Uh-huh. You know, like all these weird things that Jesus does in the Gospels. Jesus H. Spitting Christ. <laughs> yeah. Jesus H. Fish Eating Christ. Uh, Jesus H. Whip Wielding Christ. And so on. So these things are in the book. And then I got a hate letter from a reader wishing me eternal hellfire for taking the Lord's name in vain for purely artistic purposes, uh-huh. not realizing that every time I inserted a G- Jesus H, and one of them was whip-wielding, it's like a Jesus prayer. Uh-huh. It's Jesus being human. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many things that they are just buried into the text of the Gospels about very human things that Jesus did. You know, Jesus H. Sleeping Christ. Right. He falls, just falls asleep in the back of the boat. Yeah. <laughs> and the apostles have to wake him up. Hey, there's a storm going on. What's the matter with you? Oh, the humanity of Christ is so real in those instances. And he does weird things, you know, like when the, the woman caught in adultery is brought before him. Nobody has ever explained this to my satisfaction. Why does he bend over and write on the ground with his finger? And what's he writing? What's he doing? <laughs> I know. It's such a great, almost like a literary mechanic, you know. You've ever seen that film, uh, Lost in Translation? The film yes. ends where he, I think he whispers something in her ear. Bill Murray does. And we never know what he says. But, you know, everybody you know, gets to talk about it and wonder what it was. And you had that similar situation in the Gospels. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. Another great movie, I, I put it up there with Blues Brothers in terms of being deeply religious, is Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? They're priceless lines, such as uh, the George Clooney character. They've just picked up this uh, guitar player who just sold his soul to the devil. Yeah, the Robert Johnson it's prototype, Robert, right? Yeah, Robert Johnson says, I just done sold my soul to the devil. And then uh, the other two companions of George Clooney just gotten baptized. Uh-huh. Right? So he says to them, you guys dumber than a bag of hammers. And I'm the only one in this car who remains unaffiliated. One of you sold his soul to the devil and the other two just think you had all your sins washed away. You're dumber than a bag of hammers. And then at the end, at the very end, I get the movie, when he's drowning or about to be hung, that's it, he's about to be hung, George Clooney starts praying. And then yes. suddenly uh, he... He escapes hanging because all this water comes flooding into the scene, right? Yeah. And then he's drowning. As soon as he pops his head out of the water and he knows he's safe, he rejects everything he had prayed for. Oh, no, that's just, you know, right. uh, uh, the moment of weakness, you know. But I, I always love from a history safe. point of view, they brought in the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, how they would just right. flood whole towns and valleys, you know. And yeah. sometimes people were still hanging around. Another cool thing about that movie is uh, made by two Jewish fellows, you know, the Coen brothers. 
somehow they, uh, as outsiders, they understood the the American South and the the, the faith of the South and just the whole mm-hmm. dynamics, uh, probably better than people internally, you know. And you know, they make fun of it in a very, very respectful way. Yeah, yeah. Extremely respectful way. Yeah. And they, you know, they they poke fun at the the extremes of the old South. There's a scene where the Klan meeting is just. It's out of this world. They're, they're singing Amazing. a song from Wizard of Oz, like, oh, e, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the flying monkey. If I had uh, more time, it would be a fun course to teach. It would be, you know, religion and film. I could never do that here, though, because we have a whole film studies department, uh, you know. No way. I, yeah. I would be uh, laughed out of the classroom, probably. Well, you could do if you ever, like, finally decide to retire, and they beg you, <laughs> stay one more year. Say, okay, only if I can teach my course on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Blues Brothers. Yeah, I have a long list of movies that people don't think are religious, but I view them that way. Some of them it's overt. I think it's overt in Blues Brothers and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. Very overt. I think because they're comedies, most people overlook it. They don't take it seriously. Right, yeah. Oh, because you can't make fun Mm -hmm. of anything religious. Yeah, religious has to be means being serious. If you're thinking, hey, I'd like to get some more of Dr. Air, there's the other In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes on the Reformation. The most recent ones, before the one you're listening to now, 271 and 260. Or if you're in a mood to ponder more on theology, 278 might be a good one where my Uncle Paul, a minister, tells stories from his youth while also musing on some of the more difficult questions of life and religion. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week.